welcome to Spooks. That's Spooks with a B and not with a P, as you should know by now. Just Douglas Skelton again today. Denzel Myrick is off selling another million or so books somewhere, probably. Makes you sick. But today, very excited, I have an historical novelist and a much-praised historical novelist as well, which is wonderful. <laughs> Becca Maskell. Uh, Rebecca Maskell, sorry. Uh, I know you as Becca from Facebook. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me. It's um, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Oh, it's great. And we have a treat for listeners later on, which we're not going to tell them about just now. So, as I said, you're an historical novelist and you've got uh, three books uh, under your own name. Yeah. And you completed uh, another novella for a friend. And we'll talk about all this later. And now uh, you are just about to be midway through a new trilogy. Yes, that was Mickey, and that's my dog. He always tends to make a guest appearance. It's as if he knows that I've started recording. <laughs> he wants in on it. Yes. Uh, he's becoming quite a media celebrity. Um, so, uh, yeah, you're midway through, you're about to be midway through another uh, series under uh, uh, another name. But let's, let's go back to your first book. Um, and why, why did you, what made you wanted to start writing historical novels? Well, I didn't start historical. I wrote two novels um, when I was doing a master's course in Sheffield back in the early 2000s, and they were sort of more or less contemporary, um, and one had a sort of slight fantasy element. So I was trying different things, I think. And then I just had an idea for a novel about the Holocaust, which I did write. It took me three years. Um, I mean, I did have a baby in the middle, so I was quite busy. But yeah, it took me a long time. But um, that never got published, but it really taught me how to write a historical novel, how to research, how to plan, um, how to take on something which to me at the time felt almost impossible, which was to make it believable in terms of historical accuracy this is something that I knew nothing about and I just did it by trying you know I did it through experience and I learned what to do and what not to do and how to um, not allow yourself to go off <clears throat> on massive detours you know which take up six months and then you find that actually you didn't really need to know that so I learned all of those mistakes by doing it and I think once I'd had that experience I was then ready to write do a much more tighter version of that and um, the next historical novel that I tried was Victorian and I wrote that in uh, a few months um which was sort of unheard of for me at the time because I thought writing a novel would take years and years. But I did it in about six months, and that was the first novel that got my first publishing contract, and that was The Visitors. And the Visitors. Do you want to tell us a bit about The Visitors? Yes. It's, that... not, it's not just an historical novel, is it? No, it's got quite a few elements in it, actually, I would say. Yeah, it's, it's about a, a girl who's deaf and blind. Um, and she lives on a hop farm in Victorian Kent. Um, and her um, she has a very close relationship with her father. Um, uh, and she she can't communicate at all at the beginning of the book. Um, she's never learned how. And it was at a time in history where 
a lot of deaf children particularly were thought of as, as stupid, you know, as, as idiots um, because they couldn't communicate, not realising that they just needed a different way of doing it. So obviously there was a hell of a lot of ignorance about it then. So I had to research into the history of the education of the deaf and also the blind. So this girl had, you know, this, this double problem, um, which was a massive challenge. As soon as I started doing it, I thought, why have I chosen to do this? Because <laughs> it was really tough, you know, because every time I wanted to write about um, the things that I would normally put in description, like things you can hear and things you can see, you know, I suddenly realised that I couldn't do that. So it had to be all through smell and touch to begin with. Um, and that was very hard for me because I don't have a particularly good sense of smell, but also I'm very visual. So, yes, it was a massive challenge. But it all came originally from um, I was trained as a teacher a few years before and I'd worked with some deaf teenagers at the time and was very ignorant about deafness and the and the massive challenges that these children face trying to navigate an education system that was written and performed in a different language from their first language, which was for many of them was sign language. So um, their English was very behind. Um, and I didn't understand that English and sign language are totally different things, you know, as different from English is to Russian or whatever. So it was a massive learning curve for me working with these deaf children and watching how they had to negotiate the difficulty of that. And it just stayed with me. And I knew that I wanted to write about it one day. And then I read something about Helen Keller one day. It was a very famous deaf blind educator. And that just stuck in my head. You know how those things do. They just sort of percolate. Yeah. And over the years, um, after the Holocaust novel didn't get a publishing deal, which was sort of very difficult. You know, it took about two years going around different publishers and it was I nearly gave up, to be honest, because I'd already been trying to get published for about 10 years by that point. I nearly gave up. And my agent at the time said, just go and write that deaf book that you were talking about. So I did. <laughs> I wrote it in about six months and, you know, wrote it so quickly because I just, I don't know. I think it was almost like a sort of channeling. I think it had just been sitting in my head for so long that it just came out in one big rush. and. Um, Within a few weeks, we had a deal with Hodder and Stoughton. So, but it was a few weeks plus ten years or so. <laughs> yes, These overnight successes can be quite long, <laughs> you know. Yes, <laughs> but you know, as we said, it's it's not just an historic because you an historical novel because there's an adventure story in there. There's a ghost story in there. There's there's a story of friendship as well, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the supernatural element came in quite sort of halfway through, really. Um, it just sort of came to me that actually if if a girl had had a young person had had um, two of their senses missing, that it may mean that they had other abilities that had been sharpened, if you know what I mean, you know, by by losing out on these other senses. And that just really appealed to me. And then I came up with the idea for the visitors, um, which I won't say too much about because I think it's it's no. more interesting to read the book and find out who the visitors really are. So I'll leave that with the reader. But um I did have this kind of supernatural strand running alongside it, which very much affected the plot and the story and 
um, there is a love story in it. And I knew that one of the characters was going to go away to war. And at the time that I was you know, planning to set it, the main war that was going on at that time was the Boer War. And I didn't know anything about the Boer War at all. And once I started reading about it, it just blew me away. It was so fascinating. It had so many links to the First World War, which I hadn't realised in terms of the sort of world position of of Britain after the Boer War and the way that they behaved, often very badly. Um, some people may know about the concentration camps being um, really the first time that that was used as a policy was in the Boer War by the by the British. So there was loads in it that I just thought, I want to get my teeth into this. So that's that's a big part of the latter part of the novel. Um, so, yeah, there, there is a lot more to it than just about this deaf girl. But really, it was all about a person finding themselves, I think, and, and flourishing, you know, flowering after being in the wilderness, really, um, at the beginning of their life. You, you, you talk there about the research. How long does it typically take to research uh, one of your novels? Well, it's a process that I've refined over the years, definitely. Because as I said, when I first wrote that Holocaust novel, I, I spent three years on it. And I looked at everything that, you know, I could find about um, I was that particular novel was set in Warsaw. Um, mostly and and partly in the Blitz. And so I just read everything about Poland in the Second World War and everything about the Holocaust. And I what I found was that I was looking at a lot of stuff which gave me some deep background, but it wasn't actually necessary to the plot. Now, if you're not published and you've got all the time in the world or you don't need to make any money, then you can do that and that's fine. And you could research a book for 10 years if you want to. But once you get published and you have deadlines, you know, that's you don't have that luxury anymore. So I've learned over time that actually you you need to be much more focused in your research. And um, it's a it's a strange thing. They go hand in glove, the planning and the research, because I'll have an idea for a story and a plot. But once I start the research, the research will throw up things Mm -hmm. that I want to include in the plot as well. So they inform each other. So once you start looking at a place and a time, you will discover characters and situations that will change your plot because you might have had an idea about something a character would do. But then when you find out that the railways weren't built at that point, then you know you can't include that in your plot. Do you see what I mean? So you have to then change it and then you'll find out something you didn't know at all because I... I never do the right what you know, Maxim, ever. <laughs> I make life really hard for myself, but I always take on things that are that I'm completely ignorant of because that's what gets me going. You know, I want to learn as I'm writing myself. I don't want to write about myself at all. I want to write about complete escapism from my own experience. So you know, I'm learning all the time and things will be thrown up and I'll think that's a fascinating fact that I didn't know about Victorian times or World War One or whatever it is and I will work that into the story so it, it that process can take a few months of, of reading thinking planning and then once that's done the writing takes about four or five six months something like that depending on the deadline but I'll probably keep researching a little bit as I'm writing 
because um, sometimes your plot will throw up things that you didn't know or you didn't realise that you needed to know. You know. I think that's that's the point of it. I, the, yeah. I think write what you know is, has got the words in the wrong order. It should be know what you write. Uh, <laughs> because because if we all wrote what we know, we would, the books would be very dull, to be honest, because our, sure. our, our, what we know about is... is uh, is very narrow. So yeah. the idea is to do what you do. You've got your plot line and then you go out and find out about it and then what you what you learn, and I take it you don't use every single bit uh, of research that you use. You just you, you get to know what you need to know and then use what you have to. Is that, would I be right in saying that? Yeah, you would. And I think where that fails is where a novel ends up being like a historical textbook, you know, yes. which is dull and um the story is the thing the plot is everything um and the characters and the historical research must support that and make the reader feel that they are there and that can often be very subtle and just little choices of um mentions of things like how the quality of the light for example you know so when i was writing a novel in the 18th century it was a different world in terms of light and how a lot of the time people would be in the dark, you know, stumbling around in the dark, holding a candle, you know, they couldn't switch on a light. So um, I remember reading a George Eliot novel, which was set in the 18th century, and she had a character who had bruises all over their shins. And I realised it was because they were always bumping into furniture in the morning in the winter because it was dark you know and it's just little things like that that you just think oh my word you know that is a whole different world from now um yes. it's just those kind of little touches that you can drop in here or there that will convince the reader that they are in that time period without having to you know splurge a whole page of description of an 18th century street or whatever um you know you can just you use it subtly so that the pe- the person reading feels placed within that scenario without being beaten over the head with look at all the research I've done isn't it impressive you know and I I've read books like that where I've got bored because I feel yes. like I'm being sort of you know that the writer is showing off um, yes. rather than um, actually following the characters is what, which is what you really want to do. That, that's exactly right. Um, and of course, nowadays, it wouldn't be bruises in the shins. It would be indentations on the feet for parents who step on a Lego, I would imagine. So, yeah, like you. Yeah. So the, the, the idea is that the research used in the book is, is the tip of the iceberg because there's a lot more underneath uh, that, yeah. that you don't use. And, and you, But you might use uh, somewhere down the line, I, I would imagine. Now, you mentioned the Holocaust book. Has that just been stuck in a drawer and forgotten about, or do you think it could come back? Because there's there's a huge interest in the Holocaust at the moment, uh, publishing-wise. There is. Um, my agent has seen it. We have actually reworked it together. Um, the Holocaust novels that are out there at the moment are very much based on real people that are then fictionalised, whereas my novel was a fictional set of characters who were moving through very realistic scenarios within the Holocaust. So I think my particular take on it is not as fashionable at the moment as 
the real stories, you know, the whatever of Auschwitz, you know, the tattoos of Auschwitz, that kind of thing is very, very popular right now. So I think maybe it will come back in, you know, these things happen, don't they, in publishing, you have trends. So I think at the moment it might not be the right time, but we both love it and we both would would love that book to get out there. And I'm still very proud of it. But, you know, you know what it's like being a writer. You've just got to get on with your next project and um, you don't look back too much. You have to look forward. So, yes, it will be nice one day, but I don't really mind. Yes, looking back is a bad habit. Um, so did, I saw something on your website about you have a picture wall as part of your research. Yeah, I do. I always do that, actually. I started doing that with the Holocaust novel and it just carried on. And it comes as part of the early part of the research stage when you're gathering materials and you'll see pictures which just are very evocative, you know, and they will just grab you and really make you be able to visualise the era or the, the kind of topics that you're writing about. And um, what I'd end up doing was collecting those all in files um on my computer and then um printing them out or if i went on a visit for example to a, a, an important place like i went to visit a real hop farm when i was doing the visitors and i went to visit 18th century townhouses when i was doing song of the sea made my second novel um and i went to visit um a big collection of early aircraft at the Shuttleworth collection in Bedfordshire when I was writing The Wild Air, which is about Edwardian flight. And you buy stuff from the shop, you know, you buy postcards and you take pictures of the exhibits. And I found that all those pictures would just, you know, sit on the computer and and not be useful. So I used to end up printing them all out or, or getting the postcards out and just sticking them up on my cupboard wall to begin with. Um, and what I realized was that when I walked into my study in the morning um, and I had to try and get away from the 21st century and being a mum and doing the school run and all that stuff and the washing and whatever it was going around your head and try and get rid of all that stuff and step into the world of the story, that's quite a difficult thing to do, as I'm sure you feel as well, to just get rid of all that clutter and, and get into creative mode. Well, having all those pictures on the wall really helped me with that. And I would go and stand literally like a few inches away from these pictures and just stare at them all for a few minutes and just start stepping into that world. And then I felt I was ready to then go sit down and start writing. So that's how it how it started, really, was trying to get away from my present reality and step into the world of the story. I still do it now. I should mention before we move on to um, Song of the Sea Maid uh, that The Visitors was nominated for the first book award at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. It was, which was yeah. really, yeah, and I did a, a, a show, you know, a thing, at the, a talk at the festival and that was dead exciting, yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. How, do, how do you feel about doing uh, festivals and, and appearances? Do you enjoy it? Do you dread it? Is it just it's just something you accept as, as as part of our world now? I do not at, the, not at the moment, certainly, but you know, generally. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a bit of both, to be honest. I enjoy it when I get there, and I've been a teacher on and off for twenty odd years, so you'd think I'd be used to that sort of thing. But I do dread it when I'm sort of leading up to it. 
I think, you know, what if I'm boring? What if I say something stupid and all that? Um, but actually, once once I get cracking on it, um, I really enjoy it. And I love talking about the books and I love meeting readers. I mean, what's not to like? It's just so nice to meet people who want to read your work. Um, that's what it's all about, isn't it? So I think the things that I would avoid or do avoid now are just kind of basic signings where you're just sat in a shop randomly I don't do those anymore I have to say I find those really stressful just sitting there you know waiting for people to come and buy your book I I just don't think they work really um so I don't do those but if I'm invited to come and talk you know if it's um uh, a reasonable distance then I'll do that um, because it is so nice to to meet people and talk to them about the books and stuff um, I've done quite a few in Ironbridge which I know we'll talk about later because that's one of the latest trilogy set there um, and it is so brilliant to meet people from the local area that I'm writing about because they give me all sorts of information and stories. And quite often I've ended up, you know, swapping contact details with people and then they've sent me research stuff. So it's incredibly useful um, because they are the people who know what they're talking about. So, yes, I do like them. I do like getting out there, but I'm a bit of a hermit as well, although not anymore. Not after this lockdown. <laughs> 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 you're gonna go crazy <laughs> to get out and like take up all those invitations that i always thought mm, you know now i'm like yes anything i'll go anywhere you're so, gonna dash out that door and run down that street it's like i'm free we're all gonna do that thing because i am so let's move on to the second book uh, which was the song of the sea Maid. now this is unusual for, for me anyway in that somebody wrote a song inspired by the book Oh, that's a, a lovely friend of mine called Amy Naylor, who is incredibly talented. She's a singer-songwriter. Until the lockdown, she was traveling all over Europe and the world um, uh, playing her music. And she's a brilliant girl. And she and I just talked about it and ended up collaborating. She wrote a couple of songs, actually, inspired by the book. And then we did a couple of events where we we I did some readings and she did some songs and it was just a lovely collaboration, yeah, and they're beautiful songs. And she also played at the book launch as well, which was fantastic. So, yeah, really unusual thing to do. I've never done it before, but it was lovely. It's a lovely song. I listened to it on, on your website. Oh. Uh, do you want to tell us about the, the, the second book? What, what was it about? Yeah, so it, the premise of that book really was about um, great scientific ideas throughout history I've often had people who happen to be in the right place at the right time to be able to have those ideas heard. So the premise really was, what if somebody at some point in history who was completely disenfranchised from society through poverty or gender or race or whatever it was, and they came up with a brilliant scientific idea, would we ever have heard about it? And in fact, there are possibly people throughout history who have been geniuses, but we've never heard of them because they didn't have a voice in society at that time. So that was the idea behind the novel. And so I created a girl who's an orphan. So at the beginning, she's living on the streets and then she's taken into an orphanage. Um, And she has this brilliant scientific mind. And so we follow her destiny if you like through 
her different chance meetings and her own determination to educate herself um, and come up with um, this extraordinary scientific idea. And really, it was all about the interplay between her position as a female who was um, born into poverty and and how she manages to negotiate that in order to get her ideas heard and if she actually manages it or not. So it was really that idea about how can you escape your origins or perhaps you can't. So that was what inspired the story. And I felt that the 18th century would be the perfect setting for that because it was such a strange era um, in terms of there was it was the age of the Enlightenment. So you had all these new ideas coming in, new scientific endeavours. And at the same time, it was still very much mired in the superstition of the past. When you read 18th century journals, for example, you've got belief in absolute belief in things like mermaids for example um and unicorns you know they still believe that these things existed even witchcraft at that time too so you've got all this superstition and then you've got religion and then you've got the enlightenment and they're all kind of knocking heads you know and it's just it was a it was an absolute um tornado really of ideas that whole century and i knew it would be perfect place to put her to come up with this idea and see what happened to her. So, yeah, that's what it was all about. Now, just wait a minute there. Are you telling me that mermaids and unicorns don't exist? <laughs> I would never say that, Douglas. <laughs> what do I know, you know? Cer- certainly not to Scott. We believe in these things, you know. <laughs> so do I. So do I. <laughs> well, you, might, you might be getting a theme here because, obviously, you know, there's ghosts and the visitors and, you yes. know. It, I mean, it yeah, and the other novels so much. Or, well, yeah, there's a sort of ghostly element to the, the Ironbridge books that I've just written as well. I am fascinated by that kind of thing. And I think in my books, I very much leave it up to the reader to decide could it or could it not, you know. And I, I'm a big believer in science. I'm a very rational person. I love science. I don't have a scientific mind at all. I've got a sort of arty, creative sort of mind. But um, one of my brothers, or well, two of my brothers really are very scientific, and they used to um, tell me lots of stuff about science and maths, which I absolutely loved. But my brain can't really get get its head around it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I can't pain it. Um, but that's why it fascinates me. So um, I am a great believer in science, but at the same time, there are so many things throughout history that have happened that people have experienced that can't be explained. So I'm very much open-minded to possibilities, you know, and as I said to you earlier, what do I know? You know, there's so many things, you know, as I said in Hamlet, that are dreamt of. <clears throat> that are not dreamt of in your philosophy so who knows so I, I very much like to leave that open and I think it does leave it open to possibility in the book yes and it is, it is nice to get a wee a, a wee breath of the unknown uh, and, into the writing and who who knows maybe the supernatural is just a science that we've not yet properly discovered yet um that was two yes there. That's terrible. Where's my editor? So the third book, and we'll go on to the, the trilogy uh, after this. Um, yeah. So you did the you did the 19th century with the first book. You went back to the 18th century for the second book, and then came into the early 20th century. Yes. With yeah. with the wild the wild air. The wild air, yeah. So that had been a book that had been 
again, percolating for a long time because I'd seen a documentary about the Wright brothers years before and about all their trials at Kitty Hawk um, and the fact that um, they were bicycle designers as well, which really fascinated me that they just used that experience to, you know, forge ahead in this new discipline of flying and that ordinary people around them, so they didn't come from Kitty Hawk, you know, they went there because it was the, the perfect conditions for flying these machines. Um, and they were just ordinary people around who were watching this happen and helping them, particularly lifeboat men that would help them drag the plane back across the sands and that kind of thing. And it just fascinated me, that idea of a kind of ordinary person just happening to stumble on a massively important moment in history. I just love that idea. So I put that in a box, you know, and thought one day I'll write about that. I'll write about early flight and maybe it'll be about, you know, the a daughter or something of a lifeboatman who, who happens to see this happen. So when I got the deal for the visitors, the next deal that I got was with the same publisher, Hodder and Stoughton. And they gave me a two book deal for Song of the Sea Maid and wanted to know what I wanted to write for the third one. So I told them about um, the sort of, you know, the early flying and they said, yes, we like that. So do that. So when I went back to it and started looking at this story, I started reading about early aviation. And to my amazement, I found that there were dozens of female pilots around in the very early days, um, you know, the, the sort of 1907, 1908, 1909 sort of period. Um, but we've never heard of them these days. We've heard of the later ones like Amy Johnson or Amelia Earhart. You know, they're famous, but there were actually loads of women doing it in the really early days as well. And I just thought, you know, I'd much rather write about them because they were doing it. You know, they weren't just watching it. And I think, as again, there's a theme developing. I think you wouldn't realise if you've read any of my novels that they're all really about young women doing something that they probably shouldn't have been doing. <laughs> at the time. You know, that at the time it was not considered right for them to do what they were doing. And that's what they're fighting for. So when I got to the Wild Air, I knew absolutely that I wanted to write about a young woman who wanted to fly. Because this was Edwardian England. You know, this young women were not supposed to get up in a plane and fly. You know, it was it was against all the rules of decorum. Um, and it was incredibly dangerous and brave to do it. And one of the reasons we don't hear about a lot of these early pilots, male included, is because they all died. <laughs> Most of them did because it was so incredibly risky what they were doing. And a lot of them died very, very young because um, they were, you know, they had that bravery of youth and they just did it, went for it and they were addicted to it. And then they ended up dying, you know, after a year or so of doing it. So, I wanted to sort of resurrect those early pioneers. Um, we know a lot about perhaps the later ones, but after the Wright brothers, I think people kind of forget that, that there were all these other people doing this incredibly dangerous thing, which led to, you know, air, air flight today that we have that is so useful to us. So um, I wanted to memorialise them really, and particularly the women who were just as active as the men, but had to overcome far more prejudice in order to get into the air. Yeah, and there was a 
there was a personal um, involvement for you, particularly on your picture wall. Did mm. you not have a picture of your grandfather up there? I did, yes, because the, the book starts in 1909, but it goes into the First World War. Now, women weren't allowed to fly for the Royal Flying Corps. Um, so I had another character who was a childhood friend of, of my heroine, who and he goes into the army and then eventually into the RFC. Um, and I, uh, my granddad died when I was about 12 or 13, but I did know that he had fought in the First World War. Um, and I had a suitcase full of photographs and newspaper cuttings and letters and diaries and bits and bobs, which had been in my cupboard for years, never really looked through them properly. Um, and when I realised I wanted to write about the First World War, I thought, well, I'll just get those out and see if there's anything. You never know. And I found all these fascinating pictures. I found his war journal, which wasn't as interesting as it sounds, actually. It was just a list of places that he'd been. But that was really useful to sort of know what he'd been doing when he was there. And um, we called him Papa. He was a lovely, lovely chap. I still think about him often, um, even though he died, you know, 35 years ago or something. Um, and I didn't really know much about what happened to him there because he never, ever spoke about it, which yes. I'm sure you know, yeah, very common. Yes, so often the case, so often the case. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I tried to talk to him about it once because I was doing a school project on World War One, and he just would not talk about it. So I think that says a lot, doesn't it? Um, and I really wanted to, you know sort of somehow remember him and what happened to him who knows what happened to him but I certainly followed his progress um with that character that I invented and the character Dudley is very much based on my papa anyway he looks like him and he has a sort of lovely calm but affable quality that my granddad had so um it's very much you know um a tribute to my lovely papa as well yeah, that's that's nice. But you also speak very movingly about a friend of yours who sadly died of cancer, mm-hmm. um, and um, you you completed her novella for her. I did. Yeah, that was extraordinary, and that was around about this time two years ago in 2018. There's an absolutely lovely friend of mine called Vanessa Lafay, incredibly talented historical novelist. We met through Twitter, I think. Um, we we then belonged to a, a fantastic group of writers called the Prime Writers that I still belong to. Um, and we just bonded straight away. We had a lot in common. We wrote similar things. We both were obsessed with Dickens. So we talked about Dickens quite a lot. Um, and we just, she had a wicked sense of humour. And so we just hit it off. And we talked a lot on Skype, actually, over the years. She always said, oh, I want to see your lovely face. (laughs) We always had video chats. She lived down the other end of the country, so I didn't get to see her very much. And the whole time I knew her, she had cancer. um, And it had been sort of in remission, and she had long periods where she was fine. And then it just came back with a vengeance. And we knew that she didn't have long left. But she ha- she got a publishing deal for uh, a prequel to A Christmas Carol by Dickens. And she was absolutely determined to finish it. It was a novella, so it wasn't going to be too long. So she was pretty sure that she would get it finished. Um, and around about 
January, February, something like that of 2018, she was messaging me saying um, I'm on a boat going around New Zealand because she'd gone on a sort of last holiday of a lifetime. Um, but she was still writing Miss Marley, the book, as it turned out to be, saying, oh, I can't remember when Scrooge was apprenticed or what happened with this character or that character. So I, I had to go to my bookshelf and get out one of my many copies of A Christmas Carol because I collect them. <laughs> Um, and sort of look it up and um, was sending her pictures of the book, you know, on this ship in New Zealand. And we were talking about the timeline of Christmas Carol and um, chatting about it. And then when she got back from New Zealand, uh, I said to her, you know, how, how's it going? Have you, have you finished it yet? And she said, oh, I've got a little bit left. I'll give you a ring next week because I want to talk to you about that. And I want to talk to you about another book. And um, oh, can I ring you today? She said. And I said, well, it's my daughter's birthday today, so I can't today. But I'll talk to you um, at the beginning of next week. And then about two days later, she passed away in the night. So I never got to have that conversation with her. And I was obviously devastated. She was a, a wonderful friend. Um, we knew that she had a few months left, but it, we didn't expect her to go so quickly. Um, so it was awful um, and horrible. And then um, a couple of weeks later, I got an email from her publisher, HarperCollins, and they said, we want to publish Vanessa's book. It's unfinished. Would you consider finishing it for us? So, of course, I said yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a sad story, but as I say, you I would recommend anybody go to, to Rebecca's website and, and read the full story because it is very, very moving, but it's also uplifting uh, in, in many ways. Um, so we move on to the, the, the trilogy. Now, the first one came out uh, last year. Yes. Uh, which yeah. was the, the, the Daughters of Iron Bridge. Now, yeah. unusually, um, not unusually because a lot of people do it, but for these three books, you have adopted a pseudonym. Now, why, why, why are you calling yourself? By another name. Yeah. So what happened was, um, so I'd I'd done the three books for Hodder, and then I'd done Miss Marley, um, and it was time for a change in direction. I think I wanted to try something a bit different, and it was my agent's idea actually to have a go at saga writing. Now, saga is kind of a subgenre within historical but it's its own genre in its own right it it has its own rules if you like about the types of stories the types of characters and also the covers and the marketing of the books are totally different um from straight historical or historical literary fiction and you'll find them sometimes in different places in the bookshops as well so it has its own audience who are incredibly loyal um, and it is the kind of book that will get into supermarkets, whereas, uh, you know, the vast majority of historical fiction will not get into supermarkets. The, the odd one will, um, but you don't have, you know, a whole row of them in the same way as you would maybe in Waterstones, for example. So it opened up a whole other market. And that's what we were looking at, really. So because of that, even though it's still historical and it was still very much about strong females, um, it's females in saga are, are really crucial all the stories really are about women um, so my agent said look you're already writing books that are about strong women facing adversity 
So it's just really a tweak of that to start writing saga. So what do you think? Do you want to have a go? At the time, I'd just become a single mum. I was back full-time teaching to make a living and I couldn't think straight really about books at that time. So I just decided that I would have a go. And she said, look, don't worry if you can't write a whole novel. We'll just do a submission, um, a few chapters and and a synopsis. You work on that. And when you're ready, let me know. So I did. I worked on that for a year or so. And then uh, we did submit and we got a publishing deal with Bonnie Azaf um, within about a month. So that was fantastic. And I was able to leave teaching and go back to writing full time, which is what I've always wanted to do. So, yeah, wonderful. And the the way that the idea came to me for the saga, I mean, I read a lot of sagas. I did a lot of research into the genre to find out its tropes and the way that it worked and what saga readers want. Um, But I actually was just on holiday um, in 2016. I went to visit my brother who lives in Shropshire and I was standing on the Iron Bridge in Iron Bridge, um, surrounded by history. It's the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. So it's an incredible time of development in the 19th century where um, all these different industries like iron and coal, for example, um, took off um, and developed new methods. And the geology of Shropshire was perfect for that place because it had all the raw materials that were needed. And I was just standing on the Iron Bridge looking down at the River Severn thinking, what would this place have looked like, you know, 150 years ago would have been completely different. It would have been you know, just industry, smoke everywhere and, and flame billowing into the air and workers. And I just had a history shivers moment, really, where I just thought, wow, this would make a great story. And then I thought, that's it. That's what I want my saga to be about. And the Iron Bridge saga was born. So the first one was out last year the, and the second one's coming out at the end of this month, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's uh, called The Secrets of Ironbridge. It's a sequel to Daughters. Um, it is a trilogy, but each book is set 20 years apart, and you can read them as, as standalone novels because there's enough sort of backstory woven in so that you can work out what went on in the original book. I think if you want the full effect, you'd probably better off, you know, reading Daughters first and then Secrets. And it, it's about two families, a rich family who are iron masters in the first book, Um, and a poor family who work within the industry and the first book the two daughters become secret friends and it's the it's the sort of consequences of that friendship and the fallout of that friendship which dominates the whole trilogy and and there's a feud and there's tragedy and loss and joy and love and lots of stuff about the industry and industrial relations between the poor workers and the rich masters as well and obviously there are restrictions uh, ongoing at the moment so it's available on ebook um they can get it you know mail yeah yeah just found out the other day um that it is going to be in tesco's and morrison's so which is fab well that's Uh, that's that's great uh but yeah bookstores are also uh still operating (laughs) <laughs> just, yeah. just to make that clear <laughs> I would, yeah I would want to add that that um, you can buy it on ebook now because it's actually came out on ebook in March um, the paperback will be out at the end of April 
It'll be in Tesco's, but it will also be available from your local independent bookseller, many of whom are doing deliveries. So, you know, it would be great if people could ring their local bookshop or email them and um, then give them some business, which they so desperately need, um, which would be great. But if you're doing your grocery shop, you know, in your um, sanctioned, socially distant way. <laughs> Please make your way over to the books as well, because authors need to live too. And um, you know, it's a good time to start a new book, isn't it? In lockdown. Um, yeah. But it will also be in Morrison's from the end of June, so they're holding it back a little bit, um, and they're going to do a kind of buy one get one free with daughters. That will be from the end of June. So hopefully, maybe we might be out of. <laughs> isolation by then who knows who knows fingers yeah, hopefully hopefully yeah. and have you got have you got a title for the third one yet i have got a working title so i probably best not say what it is because these things might change but it is set 20 years after um the end of secrets and it's again the next generation so each book takes the reader onto the children of the previous generation and what's happening with them and how the feud is continuing between these two families. That's great. Now, we've mentioned that we're in, in uh, lockdown, in isolation, and um, just to lighten the mood a bit, you have found uh, a way of keeping your spirits up on Facebook. You've become the meme supremo, <laughs> I would say. I, I, do you spend hours trolling for these? <laughs> I really don't. I really don't. I'm too lazy. <laughs> no, I just, I ended up following a few different accounts that just made me laugh my socks off, you know, every day. And whatever else was going on in my life, however difficult things became, I knew that if I went on Facebook for 10 minutes, I would laugh. And that's very addictive, isn't it? When you just know yeah. that there's something guaranteed to make you laugh and cheer you up. So I was just following a few different accounts, a few different friends, um, particularly who were just very, very witty. And I would just go on their timelines and look at what they were doing because everything they shared was so funny. And I just started sharing stuff. This was a few years ago, actually. And people loved it, you know, and I would get all these different likes and comments. And so I just started doing it more and more. And um, I just follow that many now that all I have to do is just flick through my timeline and go, like share like share like share. you know it's not hard work you know what I mean but I seem to have developed a bit of a, rep a reputation as a, a good meme curator is what I would yes. call it <laughs> yes. um, but, you know people love it and it makes them laugh it makes me laugh so why not and uh, and I have a couple of other mates and um, Sumera and um, Emma we we both share, we all share each other and Ronnie as well we all share each other's and we all have an absolute scream and try and beat each other to the best memes as well. And we tag each other in the best memes. And it's just so much fun. So, yeah, why not? And I think I have to say it is a golden age of memes at the moment. With oh, yes. coronavirus. Yes. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a terribly serious, terrible situation. And I don't underestimate that. But at the same time, in my life, I have found that my slightly twisted dark humor is what's through you know some people don't feel like that that's fine don't be my friend on facebook because you know that's that's what my facebook is all about it's about having a laugh through the hard times but you know you've seen my 
posts on yeah. Facebook, sometimes they're very serious. And sometimes I'll be like, God, I'm really struggling today. You know, and people will just put lovely things on there and make you feel better and send you hugs and messages. And, you know, Facebook's really saved my sanity. I know a lot of people that have shut off social media during this time because it's driving them mad. But I'm the opposite. It's keeping me sane. And I can understand both points of view, to be honest, because sometimes it drives me up the wall. Yeah, I just want to laugh my way to the apocalypse. You know, it's just like, what what can I do really to change what's going on? Nothing. So the only thing I can do is try and find some joy in the middle of it all. And that's really what I try to do. You have been doing uh, on the, on Facebook is sharing videos of you playing the piano extremely well oh thank you <laughs> well it's just something i've always done i i started playing piano when i was about five i think something like that and never stopped um i was just one of those kids that never had to be told to practice you know i just wanted to do it um I, and you sorry you very kindly agreed to uh, to tinkle the ivories for us today yeah. Yeah, I will. Right, let me go through to the... So you're going to go through, and while you're going through to... The piano's in the kitchen, by the way, Spooks <laughs> listeners. Yeah, all my yeah. Facebook videos, I get loads of people telling me to do my laundry. <laughs> I'm just like, you come and do my laundry then, if it bothers you that much. Right, so I'm at the piano now, so... so um, you're going to play us out, but just before you, you, you start playing, I'd, uh, I'd like to thank you for coming on to Spooks. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, thank you. It's, it's been great to have you on. Uh, good luck with the books. Thank um, you so and, much. It's been a delight. One, the new one, which is The Secrets of Iron Bridge, which is coming out at the end of April. And so what are you going to play for us? I'm going to play a very short little haunting piece called The Sleeping Beauties Pavan by Ravel. Great. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank you. listening to Spooks, in which Douglas Skelton was in conversation with historical novelist Rebecca Maskell. Spooks is a Houses of Steel production.